0: Awesome. Great job. Uh, That song is awesome. Uh, Justin Timberlake, Chris Stapleton. If you're wondering, that is not a Christian song. Uh, It is just a fun song. But that song, I think, in a lot of ways, captures a moment that many of us can relate to, right? A moment where you find yourself in a position, in a space where you're like, what do I say? What do I do? And I know I should say nothing, but I just can't help myself, right? I remember dating uh, my wife, at the time, we had just started getting to know each other, and we were kind of progressing in that relational kind of journey where we like each other, and now it's time to meet the family. And so I'm starting to go with her to meet her parents, and then it's like because of her proximity and where we were in grad school at the time, her parents lived closer, so I found myself over there on like kind of the kind of lower-tier holidays, and there was this kind of pattern that they had. They would um, eat dinner together, uh, the extended family would come over, and then right after dinner, uh, there would be kind of game time, and, which is a little different. I, I didn't grow up in a household that played games a lot. Um, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, did, and so i um, it would be like, all right, guys, who's ready to play phase 10? And I was like, what is phase 10, and why is everyone still at the table, and what are, what's about to happen? And I'm dating this girl, so I can't bow out. I've got to stay in, and I want her family to like me. And so you, you learn about people when you play games with them, right? Uh, we, we sit down, and if you've ever played phase 10, I'm sorry if you haven't. Don't. And um, Phase 10 is a lot like this idea of purgatory. Um, If if you've ever heard of this notion, you just kind of get stuck in a limbo. Um, uh, Phase 10 is the equivalent of rush hour to me as a card game. Um, You sit there and you have to go through Phase 1 and get a certain set of cards and that gets you to Phase 2 and you have to get all the way to Phase 10. And by, by phase five, you really start to get a sense for what people are really like, you know, like that I'm dropped on a desert island, who would kill me first kind of moment, because you have to phase people, like you have to, when you go out, if they're not ready, then they're stuck in that phase they were already in, and, and so I'm, I'm doing this, and I'm going through phase one and phase two, and I'm starting to notice that, like, I'm not really competitive. Okay, if you ever play a game with me, you're gonna be like, does this guy even care about winning? Probably not. No, honestly, I don't, okay? Okay. Um, I care about winning in other areas, but just not around games. Well, everyone in my wife's family is competitive. I mean, like, sharpen the plastic spoon and stab you because it gives them an edge kind of competitive. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm playing, and I'm in this moment of dilemma. I have got an ability to phase out, but if I do that, if I put my cards down and I'm like, I'm done, then that means her mom is not done. And I've noticed that whenever you do something to her mom, Her mom will be very verbal about what you just did. And I'm like, okay, if I go out, then her mom's not going to like me and her mom will scream at me and I'm afraid of her mom because I like this girl and I'm pretty sure I need the mom on my side for the long term. So I'm in this game playing the short term and the long term strategy, right? Because I want to stay at this table. And I just remember those moments early in dating of being like, I don't know what to do. I can't help myself. I know I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't say anything. But this person really cares about being skipped. This person really cares when they take it personal, when I do something in the game. And it was just these moments early in our relationship where I would just kind of almost look up to heaven and be like, what in the world do I do? I cannot win. And I think, in a lot of ways, life is like that. There's a reason that oftentimes we use analogies to describe things, and one of the ways that we use analogies is to describe life. Is this analogy around game, sports, and games, and this because there's just something about that analogy that fits the competitive nature, the fact that there's winners and losers, and the fact that some people take it really personally, and other people are just kind of passing through, and and sometimes you find yourself in these places, and you're just not sure what to do. And this is what this series is about. This is a little bit of a shifting the gears. If you were here for the first time, in the last couple of weeks, and you're like, "Man, is this like?" It's like, "Wow, okay." The inspirational and helpful, hopeful and energy, um, and that's true. That's part of what we do. But we also really believe that, then the day, there is a lot of help to the Bible too, and. And so this series is a little bit of a shifting of gears if you've only been in the last couple weeks. So this week, um, this series, this month is really practical. It's really meant to be helpful for you. And what we want to do is kind of walk through and kind of play out this analogy about life and how do you win? How do you play well in the game of life? And what I want to do today is I want to look at an individual who's in a similar but far more serious moment. It's not sitting around a dining room table, uh, but his choice does have consequences. It's a very ancient kind of moment, but yet in this ancient kind of moment, what you find is very modern application. It's found in a a passage and maybe a story or a book in the Bible that you've never even read before, but it's in this ancient account that we see some complementary but this very contemporary way of positioning ourselves in life, the posture that we need when we come to, to this thing called life that actually ends up helping us play well. And I want to take us on a journey through this man's story In the course of this man's story, discover what are those two ways that you, can, you and I can, can kind of leverage to put us in that kind of posture to play well. It's found in a book called Second Chronicles. And um, Jason referenced the app when uh, he was up a few minutes ago. And we've already preloaded. One of the things that we've we've created that app for you, it's free. Um, And what's beneficial about the app is the message notes. It gives you a place to kind of collect your thoughts. Um, No one else is reading them just gives you an ability to kind of think through, Um, but it also helps us preload the passages for you so that you can kind of work through what we're working through. Um, If you don't have the app downloaded yet, you'll find it on the screens around me, but let me give you a little bit of a backdrop, what 2 Chronicles is, because it sounds a little different. 2 Chronicles is a portion of the Old Testament, so the Bible is a collection of two different large volumes. There is the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament primarily is focused on uh, ancient Jewish history and the Jewish law and Jewish prophets and speakers and teachers that were all pointing towards this promised one, not just the promised land, but this promised one that Christians believe came to life, came to planet Earth, lived, died, and was resurrected. um, And that's what we celebrate at history. And his name is Jesus. And so the New Testament, that second big volume, Of books and the book of Bible and and the Bible as a whole is centered around Jesus, four biographies, and his kind of the the mission that's born out of Jesus' message, which is the church and the letters that get written to those churches. So you got that's the big overview of what the Bible is. The Old Testament, because it's so big, has different types of books and different types of genres. You can't just open up the Old Testament and read each of the books the same way because they're different genres. It's like reading a um, car manual the same way you would read Harry Potter. Like it just doesn't work, right? There's, it's a different genre. And the section of books that you find 2 Chronicles in is this historical, the historical books. And the historical books, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, these, these different books all center around Jewish history. Specifically, the Kings and Chronicles are these two volume sets that focus on the kings of the the nation of Israel. And I say all that to set the backdrop, because this is primarily the, the record of what was going on in the life of the nation of Israel through the lens and through the leader of Israel at the time. First Chronicles spends a lot of time, it's primarily focused on David, who was the kind of greatest king in Israel's history. David has a son named Solomon, and Solomon is what begins at Solomon's birth, his reign, uh, his birth as a king, the reign of him as a king that starts the book of Second Chronicles. And so it begins this way. Solomon, son of David, established himself firmly over his kingdom for the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Then Solomon spoke to all of Israel, to the commanders of thousands and to commanders of hundreds, to the jur- judges and to the leaders in Israel, the heads of families. What you see is that Solomon has just stepped into this role. He's gathered all of Israel together. And it's all of Israel's represented through the leadership present that day. So by having all the leaders present, Solomon is able to interact with all of the nation. The same concept is true of what the Congress of our nation represents. That you have representatives from all the different areas around their nation. So in theory, when all of them come together, you have a snapshot of the entire nation. And this is what Solomon has done. He's gathered together all the leaders of Israel so that standing before them, he is figuratively standing in front of all of Israel, this great nation that he's now in charge of. And what he does in verses 3 through 6, I won't dig into too much because of time, but just to summarize, is he gathers all of them at the most religious spot in in the nation at the time. And he's gathered gathered them there because they're going to kind of take part in a religious ritual together. You see, it's important to realize that ancient Judaism understood faith geographically. They believed that there were certain places and certain ways that God was closer to them. And this geographical frame of understanding their faith meant that whenever they wanted to meet with God, they geographically went to a physical space. And so Solomon has asked all the leaders to show up at this one special spiritual place. And this is a little different than how the kind of Christian theology is. Christian theology doesn't think faith geographically. It thinks faith relationally. You're relationally connected to God. It doesn't matter where you are on planet Earth. But for the ancient Jews... The idea was that God had a special place he had picked out, and that space and place was where you came to meet with him. And so they have this large religious celebration. They have um, significant rituals taking place. And in the midst of those rituals, what we see in verses 3 through 6 is an incredible devotion to God. Solomon's father was not perfect, but the thing about David was David had a very deep devotion to God. He was not a perfect man. He made some ridiculous, ridiculous errors in his life. He he committed sins that would have thrown him in prison today. But at the heart of who he was, was a man who genuinely desired to have a relationship with God and to to honor him and to please him. And Solomon picks that part up from him. So Solomon makes this very um, generous uh, kind of sacrifice to God. And he falls asleep that night. And that's where we pick up in verse 7. That night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Think about that question. First of all, that's a really incredible question. God doesn't show up at any other point in any other place in all of the Bible to ask that question to anyone else. I mean, How would you respond if God showed up to you and said, whatever you want, ask for it? Like, there's a blank check, and then there is this blank check. There has never, ever been a blank check quite like this blank check God has shown up with. God's like, whatever you want, Solomon. I've been so moved and so pleased by the way you have gathered the people together, and the way you have honored me, and the way that you have sacrificed to me. I see your heart, I see your desire, I see your devotion. Whatever you want, Solomon, I'll give it to you. And it says, verse eight, Solomon answered God, give me the biggest house, the sweetest car, the most beautiful wife, all the money in the world. Make me have hair that flows to the middle of my back. Make me six foot one. I want to be a little bit taller. I want to be a baller, right? I mean, like he's just, no, instead of saying any of that, what does he say in verse eight? He says, you have shown great kindness to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God. Let your promise to my father, David, be confirmed. For you've made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead these people. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And that's his response. So, so atypical of what someone would actually do if they were asked by God, Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. But what Solomon does in this response to God, I think, shows us two distinctive aspects of where he was, these, these ways that he was posturing himself to live his life well. And the first is that Solomon had this posture of responsibility. You can see it. He has this deep sense, this deep weight on him. You notice the language he uses, right? He's like, he says, these are your people. You have made me king. There is numerous as dust on the earth. Like you can almost feel the deep sense and weight of responsibility that Solomon has this night. It's it's the the people that are present around him because the, the nation is still there. The, the leaders, they've, they've all stayed. They're camped outside of the tent that Solomon is inside of. He feels the weight of all of those people present and represented by the leaders present. And all he can do is he calls out. But in that calling out, what we see is he had a sense of responsibility. Now, one thing that's helpful to realize is that the ancient Um, Jewish kingdom of Israel was uh, something that you don't see a lot today. It was called a theocracy. And a theocracy, we we have a democracy, but a theocracy is this idea of it's a form of government where um, God is his law, his rules, his standards, his kind of like what he's defined. Those are, in fact, the laws of the land. We're not a theocracy, but Israel is. And to be king meant that God had picked you to rule his people, but you were to represent him in the way that you led and the way you ruled his people. So I think Solomon has this healthy understanding that he's not entitled. He may have grown up a prince, but that does not make him entitled to be a king. For Solomon, and his frame, what he understands, what he's feeling in that moment, is being king is not something he was entitled to. It was something he was entrusted with. And a significant difference to be entrusted with being king. And this is what Solomon feels. He feels the weight of all those people sleeping around him. He knows he's responsible to them. And he's been entrusted with leadership for them. Uh, When Ella was 14 months old, my wife uh, traveled out of town for the first time, um, which meant I was at home for the first time ever with my child. And I'd gone 14 months avoiding that moment because I was deeply terrified by it. Because I I don't understand cries and I don't understand squeaks, but my wife did. She would know a squeak and a squeak meant she was hungry and a a double squeak meant she was uncomfortable and a triple squeak meant she wanted to watch something on television or order pizza. I don't, like, I had no idea. Like, what does these things mean? And so my wife's like, hey, I've got to go out of town for a couple days. Are you good with Ella? And I'm like, no, I'm not good with Ella. And I'm like, write everything down. Like, give me a translation manual because I don't want to Google my way through the weekend because I'm pretty sure that's not called parenting well. And so we're, we're, she's, she's good. She's coached me up. I'm ready. She leaves and um, she calls me and I've gotten Ella down. She's in the crib and I am like, fist pumping. I was like, I get to watch whatever I want to watch on television. That's a win. And um, I'm good. Like, I've survived. And I'm like, only 36 more hours to go. And I will have been successful. And my wife calls. And she's like, how's it going? I was like, girl, I am knocking a home run. And then I went and got that ball up, found another park, and knocked it out of that one too. I am awesome. I am so good right now. Hold on a second. I hear some noises. I'll be back. And so I go upstairs. And there in the crib is my daughter. And her face is starting to look a little little. different and I pick her up and her body's limp. She's drooling out of her mouth. I go to put her on her changing table. She physically doesn't have the strength and I realize she's not breathing and her air passages are closing up. The most terrifying moment my entire life. I'm still on the phone with Jenny. And she's like, you should call 911. I'm like, I should call 911. Because in this moment, I realized that as I'm dialing 911, and I'm like, keep it together, Chris. Keep it together. Where do you live? I have no clue where I live. Don't you people track this kind of stuff? Like, I need your address, sir. I, I don't know where I... Okay, I... I I think I remember my address. And I mean, like I am, like in my head, I'm like, Chris, you have to keep it together. You have to do this. You can't freak out right now because this girl's life depends on you. It is all on you. And the sense of responsibility that hit me that night weighed on me like a million pounds. Because that moment, it was so crystal clear. What had always been true, but what was so crystal clear that night was this thing called my daughter. This human being, the responsibility for her and life was on me. And it was terrifying and heavy. But I think in some ways, this is what we see Solomon dealing with that night. He's like, I feel the weight of leading these people. And if we allow that weight to press on us a little bit, it doesn't have to crush us, but it can weigh us down just enough that it causes us to become aware of it. I think what can happen is it can be a powerful force in your life. It can be a powerful strengthening in your life. What we see Solomon doing is demonstrating this very ancient Judeo-Christian doctrine, this belief that, at the, the very first moment of creation that human beings were given the breath of life from God Almighty. That it's not just that we're made up of a bunch of DNA and that all those things have come together that make up this thing. But that what makes me distinctly me. Because you can, if you've ever been to a funeral, the DNA is present. All the outline and skeleton structures, they're all present. All the organs are right there. What's lacking is the breath of God, that breath of life. And in the Judeo-Christian world that Solomon is operating out of, and that, that even if you're in this room and you're a Christian, that you are operating out of, or at least have been somewhat exposed to, is that the very breath in my lungs came from him. That yes, I I may have an intelligence that allows me to think quickly and to, to process through stuff and to see things other people don't see. But that brain was given to me by Him. The breath in my lungs came from Him. The strength in my arms came from Him. So, yes, I have a responsibility to do things with it, but at the end of the day, it all started with him. And there's this healthy awareness that Solomon has that causes him to see life completely different. And it's a powerful frame to view life through when you realize that the breath in your lungs came from him. And if he gave you the very breath in your lungs, the brain in your head, the feet on your body, if he gave you those things, then there is some sense of accountability and responsibility that comes with it. Imagine if you and I walk through life. Just You don't have to believe this, but just put on the lens for a second. Imagine if you walk through life with the lens that Solomon had and you thought about your friendships and they had these friendships of yours, God. You gave me these people. This marriage that you gave me, God. These kids that you gave me, God. These finances that you gave me, God. This job that you gave me, God. How would that change the way you handled those things? How would you treat your significant other? How would you treat your children? How would you treat your friends and your co-workers if you viewed them through the frame and the lens of responsibility? That I am responsible to them not necessarily responsible for them because they make their own choices but I have a responsibility to them that weight that frame I think would cause us to treat people differently it would cause us to view life circumstances from grand to granular differently and this is what we see Solomon has. Solomon has this weight of responsibility, but that's not alone. He has responsibility, but we also notice in verse 9 or 10, right? He says, now, Lord God, let your promise to, be to my father David be confirmed, for you've made me king over a people who are as numerous as dust on the earth. He's like, give me wisdom and knowledge. He's in that moment, not just filling this posture, this weight of responsibility. He's also coming to terms with this deep recognition and awareness that he is... He doesn't have all he needs to lead them. He's like, there's numerous as dust in the earth. I'm a young man. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I might lead them. What he's saying is, I don't have what I need to lead. I have this deep recognition, God, that I am inadequate for this task that has been entrusted to me. And this responsibility tied to this recognition, give Solomon a posture and a position to cry out for wisdom. Because Solomon Solomon understands he doesn't know it all. He doesn't have it figured out. He doesn't have swagger and bravado. He's not walking around with what's called the Dunning and Kruger effect. Which is an effect that this story illustrates really well. In 2008, there's a psychiatrist named Stephen Greenspan who published this uh, book on the annuals of gullibility, is what it was called. And what he does in this decades' amount of research, kind of condensed into this book, is he teaches people how to avoid being gullible, which sounds really interesting. Two days after Stephen Greenspan publishes his book on how to avoid, gullibility right this magnum opus of his life's work on avoiding being gullible his financial advisor is exposed as a fraud Bernie Madoff and that day two days after his book on gullibility and how to avoid being gullible he loses a third of his life savings to Bernie Madoff and the scheme being revealed you see, what this psychiatrist demonstrates is that Dunning-Kruger effect, this idea that in psychology that, that states that the most confident people are oftentimes the most ignorant ones. Uh, if you are a parent or you happen to be around small kids, you've probably noticed this. Right? I get told frequently by my six-year-old, I know Daddy. Like, oh, really, you know how to drive a car? You you have passed the state test and you can get in that driver's seat and drive me somewhere? Because you know? I mean, I hear I know daddy all the time. I'm like, girl, you don't even know what you don't know. But the challenge is, is it's not a problem six years old has alone. It's a problem we all have. Because I've met 60-year-olds who have the same struggle as my daughter does. I have had moments in my life where I reflect that kind of confidence without any competency or understanding in the area that I'm in. That's why as a general rule of thumb, I try not to talk a lot because I learned early on, the more I talk, the stupid I actually sound. And I think Solomon had something rare. Solomon recognized he didn't have it all figured out. He knew he didn't know. And for many of us, we feel threatened by the idea of not knowing something. So what do we do? We pretend to know something. Oh, I got that figured out. We'll talk confidently about whatever it happens to be, but in reality, we're just posing. We don't actually know. But the challenge is, is what the psychiatrist, this team, Dunning and Kroger, figured out, is that most people who do it don't even know they're doing it. They feel confident on the inside. And as a good rule of thumb, not the only, but just a good general rule, the more confident you feel in a circumstance, the more you should be suspicious of your knowledge in that circumstance. Just as a general practice, if you feel really good about a decision, take a step back. If you find yourself having a conversation about something you absolutely don't know... But because you Googled it one night, and you spent 15 seconds reading all these websites about it, and now all of a sudden you have this swagger and confidence that you could give a TED Talk on it, you should probably just take a step back. Most of us don't have enough knowledge to give TED Talks about things, but we feel like we do. And, and maybe you see this played out with your teenager, or maybe you as a teenager see this played out with your parent, but the reality is, is it happens every day, and it's one of the things that prevents us from Forming and stepping into this posture that we see Solomon have of just recognizing, I don't have it figured out. One of the most freeing things I do regularly is to say the words, I don't know. It just takes the pressure off of me. What do you think about that? I don't know. I have no clue what rugby is. I have no idea about baseball stats. I don't know. No, I, I, I don't know about Tom Brady's wife. I don't know. Like There's just these moments, these small moments where we can fall into these traps. I'm like, I just don't know. I I can't talk about that. I'm, I'm ignorant of that situation or that circumstance. And Solomon, by doing that, he opens himself up to that awareness, that recognition. He doesn't have it figured out. And what does he do? What does he do with that awareness? He cries out to God. He looks up to heaven. He doesn't look in. Because he realizes what's inside is pretty sparse and empty. There's nothing inside of there. He knows he doesn't have it figured out. So, what does he do? Instead of looking in, trying to find the answer somewhere hidden within him, he looks up and he says to heaven, I need wisdom. Now, here's the thing wisdom is not intelligence, wisdom isn't equated with old age, it's not experience. Wisdom is none of those things. Although sometimes we see those things and we think it's wisdom. Solomon isn't experienced. He isn't old. He doesn't have any, like seemingly, he's not above average in his intelligence. But yet we know from history that he becomes one of the wisest people who's ever lived. And it's because wisdom isn't experience. It isn't old age and it's not intelligence. What wisdom is, is wisdom is a, is formed out of this posture of looking up to, to heaven and having the perspective that heaven, that eternity brings to a light and kind of temporary moment on earth. Now you may not be comfortable with some of the religious terms I use, so go read Nietzsche and Nietzsche will say the exact same thing without God present. But Nietzsche still kind of blindly finds this definition about wisdom. He talks about the cosmos, and how, when you look at how vast the universe is, Carl Sagan does the same thing out of that same worldview. When you look at how vast the, the, the universe is, you recognize how small you are, and out of that smallness of you are, you have perspective about your life. So this is the same idea. They're just blindly bumping up against what Solomon sees very clearly. That having the perspective of eternity gives me insight to how to live my life today. That when you know there's a forever you start to gain insight in what to do in every situation. To kind of state it another way that's a little simpler, wisdom is essentially having the right insight. It's having the insight and the impulse of what to do, what to say, in the circumstance that's right. And that right insight in all the different circumstances and all the different ways and things to say, that is in essence what wisdom looks like practiced daily. And this ultimately comes from us looking up, not looking in, but it only is formed when we have this posture of recognizing responsibility and us recognition that we don't have it all figured out. What happens when we do those two things, and this is why it's so mysterious, is when we take those two things, it puts us in a posture that opens us up to experience wisdom. Now, I remember the first time, this was like the, like the most profound insight for my tiny little human brain, but I remember the first time I discovered where moonlight comes from. I, I don't know why in my head, but growing up, you have this idea, there's the sun, and then there's the moon. And on Full moon nights, it almost lights up everything, especially if we've had a really good snow and the ground is covered in white. You can walk outside and on a full moon, it's like all, I mean, you see everything. You don't need to turn on a light. You can see it all. And, and growing up, my little tiny human brain just kind of thought that there was like, you know, a really bright bulb called the sun and a little dimmer called the moon. And I remember vivid like this like moment where I realized that, The moon is nothing more than a ball of dust and rock. But yet the moon shines light onto our planet because of its position and posture it has before the sun. That the sun in all of its brilliance, when it hits that ball of dust and rock, if it's in the right space and place, then what happens is that we collect the illumination of that reflection. And I think in a lot of ways, moonlight captures what wisdom looks like. It's not that it's necessarily something that's coming from within. It's about having the correct posture when we look up to heaven with responsibility and with recognition, we don't have it figured out, Then it does something inside of us. This opens us up to insights. And all of a sudden is what happens in our life from that posture is we start to see things differently. It starts to, we start to have insight. There starts to be illumination. And in the end, wisdom is a supernatural thing that we reflect this kind of sunlight, not S-U-N, but S-O-N, light coming down from heaven. And that this posture, there are benefits to it. That's why I said today's message and this month is really practical. Because when you look at verses 14 and 15, right when it sums it up, it says that, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. After he's kind of responded, after God says, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you this thing you've asked for. I'm going to give you wisdom. But because you didn't ask for all these other things, what's going to happen is when I give you wisdom, these other things will come too. Is that Solomon accumulated char- char- chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in chariot cities and also with them in Jerusalem. The king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones and and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. And I love verse 15. Solomon's posture, his desire, this recognition that he doesn't have it all figured out, and yet he has this responsibility to lead people, puts him in a place that in the end when wisdom starts to shine down on him, what starts to happen is good things start to happen to the people that he leads. That gold and silver become as common as stone. It's just not about Solomon. The security of his people, because that's what the chariots and the horses represent. The economy of his people. All of these things start to shift because of his wisdom in motion and in practice. And imagine, what if your life and my life regularly reflected wisdom in the way that Solomon did? What if we had that that posture that had recognition and responsibility and it put us in a place to say, God, we need you. We need you to guide us in how we live our lives and the things that we say and the things that we do. Imagine what your friendships would look like if wisdom was shining through you and off of you. Imagine what your kids would look like. Imagine the decisions that you would be making in your life. Imagine some of the worst decisions you've made in your life. Would you have made those decisions had you had this posture? That when you start to imagine the way your life and my life could look with wisdom reflecting off of it, what starts to happen is that you can easily visualize through even this kind of example of Solomon that things in our life would look different. We would see things differently and things probably in the end would be better because of it. And this is why this month, this entire month, I want us to walk through a journey together where we're going to look at this this idea I introduced this morning called wisdom and the posture to put ourselves to receive it best. What it looks like for that thing called wisdom to flow into our relationships, to flow into our decision-making, to flow into how we move about our life in general. And that if you're interested in what that wisdom could look like, then I want to invite you back over this month as we dig in and as we unpack what wisdom would look like, not just in Solomon's life, but in our life too. Let's pray.